you guys have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. Pastor needs prayer. Pastor, pastor does not feel good. <laughs> so let me lower the expectations for the message today, like right off the bat. I don't even know what planet I'm on right now. So, but you know, the Holy Spirit's bigger than all that, right? We're going to handle John chapter 4 a little differently today. You know, this is a... An amazing story. I'm sure that uh, you're familiar with it. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And uh, two ways to handle this today. Either read the whole uh, portion of scripture or just kind of track along with it. We're going to do the latter. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll see what God does. Father, thank you so much. You're good and faithful. And Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. You reach down into the muck and the mire, the craziness of our life. God, you pursue us. You seek us. While we're in the midst of our sin and confusion, you come after us. And this story is a timeless reminder, timeless reminder of how relentless your love is. Father, I pray today that if there's a, a soul in this room that has yet to see that and realize that you're the God who pursues. If there's a soul in this room is yet to be captured by your love, may you do that today. God, may you lift the burden of guilt and shame and bring living waters to that thirsty life. Father, we love you, and I do pray, God, that you just grant mercy and strength for me today as I teach in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. You know, it, it is interesting to me, it, it seems like uh, every time a celebrity implodes, you know, we, we, a celebrity or a star, you, you guys know how we are, right? I mean, people idolize these uh, individuals that really have reached this uh, level or status of um, pretty much, I think, what most people believe is the pathway to real satisfaction. And, and um, when, when we see a celebrity or a star uh, implode, you know, there's just that sense of shock and uh, not, not awe, but, but shock for sure. And I think that the shock, obviously, you know, we can, we can um, be concerned and care for people when they struggle, but I think sometimes the shock reveals this uh, principle or philosophy that still is embedded within us that thinks something like this. When you reach that status... When you reach celebrity status, you know, that's when you really find satisfaction. When you get to a place where you have all of the resources and all of the attention and, and you know, you really have everything that the world um, says, this will bring meaning to your life. Um, you know, when we see someone fall, we're shocked because deep down inside, we may believe that. I mean, we may not necessarily articulate that with our words, but... But deep down inside, some, sometimes I think that we have this uh, perception that if you can reach this, this status of a celebrity, then you know you really have everything that life can offer. Anthony Bourdain, CNN celebrity traveler uh, slash chef, you know, before he took his life, he said these words. He said, I am lonely and living in constant uncertainty. I think we would be surprised to discover how many celebrities slash stars are really living miserable lives. 
His mother actually said after he took his life, he is absolutely the last person in the world I would have ever dreamed would do something like this. And then she said, he had everything. But apparently not. Apparently not. You can have everything that the world has to offer, and you can still be an empty person. And I I say that to us today as a reminder that there are broken people in need all around us every single day. And listen, not only that, but sometimes I think that the people uh, we would perceive as least likely to be empty are probably the ones who are the, the most empty, you know, the people in your life that seem to have it all, and maybe they're the owner of the business. You know, maybe they're, they're the star on the team. Maybe they're the person that has, you know, the, the highest GPA in the class. You know, that person, just because they have those things, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're really satisfied. God's people, the church, are supposed to be seeking out unwanted and broken people in Jesus' name so he can rescue them. Do you believe that today? And by, by the way, I'm going to need a little bit of this this morning, all right? So, so you just jump on board with me today. <laughs> Thank you. Mercy. I, I, I plead for mercy today. So let me just say this again because, you know, you might be shocked by something else I'm going to say. God's people, the church, are supposed to be seeking out unwanted and broken people in Jesus' name so he can rescue them. And, you know, while we might, might collectively agree with that, the truth is this, that Christians are beginning to believe less and less that it's our responsibility to share the gospel. Barna came out with a, um, a whatever you call it, what, I'm, this is going to be our time to, today, okay? I'm going to forget words, and it is just going to be a mess, but you're going to be merciful with me. There was an article that Barna came out with. It was entitled, Sharing Faith is Increasingly Optional to Christians. And they did two studies, one in 1993 and one today. In 1993, nine out of 10 Christians agreed that it was every Christian's responsibility to share their faith. And in 2022, that number dropped to six out of 10. Six out of 10 Christians believe it's their responsibility to share their faith. And so, listen, we might collectively uh, applaud and say amen, but, but it's possible. I'm just saying it's possible that 40% of us in this room don't really believe it's our responsibility. In fact, we might perceive it as, as an option, you know, as something that we do if it's convenient for us to do. And I, I, I would say, like, step beyond the intellectual aspect of that and just survey our own lives. What do our lives reflect? Are we really burdened for the lost? Is there a sense of urgency that we have? Are we broken over the brokenness of people and the emptiness of the people that are in the circle of influence that God has planted us in? Because you know, God has planted you in a circle of influence. You know, you're surrounded by people that God has divinely appointed you to be around so that you can be a light, so that you can shine the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this story is interesting because, as I've as, as I said to you many times, you know, John is organized, this gospel account is organized around eight signs that Jesus did that prove that he's the son of God, and eight sayings that Jesus, that's I'm in puberty right now, sorry. It's, <clears throat> I'm hoping today 
that with the deeper voice that I get, I'll have more hair that will grow on my head too. <laughs> amen. I can't believe you amen that. I mean, I, I say uh, amen. That'd be a great miracle this morning, wouldn't it? So eight, eight signs that Jesus did that proved that he was the Son of God, but also eight sayings that he said that only the Son of God could say. Eight I am sayings. Well, this story has none of those. Doesn't have any signs, doesn't have any, uh, any I am sayings, but it is an absolutely uh, important story in the gospel according to John. What we're going to do today is we're just going to track through this story and we're going to learn a little bit about our Lord. The Bible says in verse 1, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. You may want to just uh, take a note of that. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey. By the way, not a topic we're going to touch on today in any great detail, um, but whenever you look at um, an expression of humanity in the life of Christ, like weariness or sorrow, um, just remember that the, the Bible's faithful to convey that Jesus is not only fully God, but Jesus also is fully man. He is the God-man. So he was wearied as he, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That would be 12 noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And there's a parenthetical here because this was the uh, religious racial backstory for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, she's no fool. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. <laughs> she's no fool. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So, listen, the first thing I want you to notice today as we kind of begin this conversation or at least to study the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, is that Jesus wants the unwanted. Jesus wants the unwanted. There is, I believe, an intentional contrast between John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. By that I mean between two individuals, the first being Nicodemus and the second being the Samaritan woman. I don't think it's, what I'm trying to say is I don't believe it to be an accident that John wrote the gospel the way that he did. I think that he has... The stories of Jesus meeting these two people connect juxtaposed together intentionally because there's amazing contrast. For, on, for instance, on the one hand, you have Nicodemus, who is named, he is respected, he's honored, he's an honored man, he's influential, 
He's a man, he's educated, he's Jewish, and he's righteous. And then on the other hand, you have this woman, this Samaritan. She's unnamed, she's unwanted, she's a woman, she's most likely illiterate, she's a Samaritan, like I said, and she's a sinner. Two totally different situations, two completely different people. Nicodemus came to Jesus while Jesus went to the Samaritan woman. I just want to say to you this morning, witnessing for Jesus Christ requires both. Sometimes people will come to us and there will be those divine appointments that just seem to happen, but you know, we can't wait for people to come to us. We must be willing to go to them. That's what this 10,000 Bible outreach is, by the way. It's just an easy setup for you to be able to go and to witness to people. But, you know, Jesus was willing to go to a place where many Jews were not necessarily willing to go. This is kind of how the geography of the journey from Jerusalem to Galilee worked. Um, If you were in Jerusalem and you were heading to Galilee, there were three different ways you could go. You could take the sea route. You could take the route that went through Samaria, and you could take the route that went up the Jordan River. Um, The vast majority of travelers, when they were going to and from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would normally take the, the Jordan River route. And they would do this because the sea route was too far away, and the route through Samaria, number one, would take them through a land where there was a lot of religious and racial tension. Um, And there's a whole history behind the Samaritan people and why there was this religious and racial tension between them and the Jewish people. And not only that, but it was also the most dangerous route to take. And so most people avoided the route through Samaria and would have gone up uh, the Jordan River way. Jesus, the Bible says, and, and this is my personal opinion, but in verse four, the Bible says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's my view that Jesus was on a mission, and he was on a mission to meet this woman. And she was absolutely surprised. You know, she went to the well at high noon, the hottest time of the day. Um, There are some people who contend that this woman was, you know, kind of notorious in her village. By the way, when you live in a small village, everyone knows your stuff. Everyone knows your stuff. And so you don't have to have social media you know, in a small village to know everybody's business. And everyone probably knew this woman's business. Some contend that she was kind of marginalized, maybe a little disenfranchised, that she went to, and we'll talk about what the issues in her life were in just a moment, um, but she was going at noon because, because of this. She'd been disenfranchised kind of by the rest of the community. So she was by herself gathering water. I'm not necessarily sure if that's absolutely true, but be that as it may, she was surprised on this particular day because when she got there, there was a Jewish man, little did she know, there was a Jewish man that was waiting for her, waiting for her at the well, waiting to give her an opportunity to hear about living water and to have her life turned into a life of worship. You know, really, this woman was surprised, and you know that she was because she says herself, as the conversation starts, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are having a conversation, or you ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's surprised because the situation is scandalous. It was scandalous for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman. A well-known rabbi of the time had said this, and this was kind of the the modus operandi of the time uh, with respect to men and women talking. He said, 
and this was kind of the way the law worked, one should not talk with a woman on the street. Wow, the first service was really surprised at that. (laughs) One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. And then uh, it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. So this is the cultural context of the time, and you can understand why this woman's so surprised when Jesus, a Jewish man, asks her for a drink. Um, There were all of these social conventions that could have kept Jesus from reaching this woman. Like I said, there were racial conventions and religious conventions. Um, She was a woman, and yet there was no man-made convention that would constrain Jesus from reaching someone who is in need. I want to ask you today, are there conventions that you have set up in your life or constructs that you have set up in your life that keep you from sharing the gospel with broken people who need to hear about about Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reach the up and out, and Jesus came to reach the down and out. Maybe today, maybe today you're up and out, because the fact is this, whether you're up or whether you're down, if you don't have Jesus, you're out, right? So today, today maybe, maybe you're up, maybe you're up, and you, you, you've got it, right? You've got it all. You're, you, you, are, you are hitting the peak, Everything is working for you. Everything is clicking, and, and yet there's a, a sense of need in your life. Well, Jesus is here today to meet that need that you have. And then, and then on the other hand, maybe you're down and out. Maybe things couldn't be worse. Maybe you couldn't be more marginalized. Maybe you couldn't be more victimized. It seems as if everything in your life goes the wrong way. Well, Jesus is here to meet the need in your life as well. My, yeah. <clears throat> My evangelism teacher used to say, he is able to save from the uttermost to the guttermost. And I, and I love that. Hey, he starts the conversation so simply, right? I think uh, as we, we're talking about evangelism, you know, sometimes we make it so complex. What does Jesus do? He starts simply by saying, give me a drink. Just give me a drink. What's he doing here? He is bridging the physical with the spiritual. He is bridging the earthly with the heavenly. He's going to go from give me a drink to, hey, if you knew who it was who said to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Look, I mean, witnessing is not that hard. Find something that you have in common with somebody and then take that thing and build a bridge to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was beginning to show this woman that she had a deeper need inside that only he was able to meet. Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician and turned Christian philosopher, he said this. He said that every human heart is created with an infinite abyss, a craving that can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Our modern way of saying that is that we all have a God-shaped hole or vacuum within our hearts. It's not as beautiful as the way that Blaise Pascal said it, so I'm going, I'm going with his, his way. So he, he says simply to her, if, if you knew who it was who asked of you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus describes living water here in these verses as a gift from God, um, as something that permanently satisfies your thirst, as something that bubbles up into eternal life. Uh, The phrase living water was significant back in those days because it described a water source uh, that had, or it described 
It described a river or a spring that had a source as opposed to a stagnant body of water. And Jesus is simply saying here that the Holy Spirit, those who put their trust and faith in him, will have as a source of satisfaction the Holy Spirit of God. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So Jesus goes from asking to offering, but there's something in the way in this woman's life that he has to address. And so the Bible says in verse 16, let me draw your attention back to the scriptures. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then, then she says this, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You gotta, you gotta love that. She's like, she's, she's, she's catching it, right? She's catching it. So he gives the good news of living water, but with the good news of the living water, he also has to address the bad news of the sin issue in her life. I mean, she had, like I said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, she had created for herself a broken cistern that was incapable of really bringing satisfaction to her life. What does Jesus do here? Well, he, draw, he intentionally draws something out. Before the living water can come, Jesus has to heal this woman of her guilt and shame. And so very gently and very tenderly, not in a condemning way, he, he reveals to her that he knows every single detail of her life, the sordid stuff and the good stuff. And the sordid stuff needed to be confronted. It was just a matter of fact for this woman to really realize and experience all that Jesus had to give to her, the issue of sin needed to be addressed. You know, if you go to the dentist and, you know, your teeth are all crooked and, you know, you, you want to get your teeth straight, sometimes the dentist will say, listen, we're going to straighten your teeth, but the problem is your teeth are all impacted and we're probably going to have to yank a couple of teeth so that we can straighten your teeth. And that's never good news. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like sin in our life. Sometimes things have to be yanked out so that God can straighten us up. Sometimes things need to be addressed. You know, and what the devil really loves to do is keep us in a place where we, we hide our sin. We keep, it, we keep it in the darkness. By the way, that's the place of toxicity. That, that's not the place of healing. When you bury it, when you conceal it, when you just move on acting as if it's not really there, there's no healing, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness from the Lord in that place. No, what the Lord has to do is he has to bring it out into the light. Jesus was not shaming her, he was healing her of her guilt and shame. And you know guilt and shame can be such a burden. It can be such a burden. Guilt is a feeling of responsibility or remorse for some offense or wrong. And shame is the painful feeling that arises from doing something dishonorable, wrong, and is resulting public appearance. And you know, these things burden our hearts. Let me say this, guilt and shame are good because they can be gifts of the awareness of sin. God shows us. I mean, if we didn't have guilt and shame, then we would just sin and continue in sin with no compunction whatsoever. But listen, it's bad, it's bad, guilt and shame are bad 
when we don't bring them to the Lord to be healed at the foot of the cross. That becomes a toxic place. When we bury it, when we conceal it, when we think, well, you know what, maybe just one more relationship will deal with this burden that I'm bearing in my life, or maybe one more drink, or maybe one kind deed will just cover the guilt that I have, and the truth is this, none of those things will last, and none of those things will heal you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I have really good news for you today. Jesus heals both. Maybe you rolled into church, and I know like you roll into church and you sing a happy song and you hear a hopefully inspirational message, but the fact is this, you've got a burden on your heart that you've been bearing. You've rolled into church with a a whole set of sins that have produced a lot of guilt and maybe even some shame. And you do all these things to try to conceal it or cover it up or to address it, and they all fall short. Well, there's someone here that's present today. His name is Jesus, and he's able to lift that burden. He's able to lift that burden. You say, well, you know, my sin's so bad, Pastor. I say, well, his blood's so powerful, my friend. His, his blood is powerful. This woman had... This woman had five husbands, and listen, the truth is this, she was busy, right? I mean, a lot of husbands, and, and the fact is, maybe they all, maybe they all died of natural causes, and, and I mean, husband number three should have started asking some questions, and so we don't, we don't know the details around all of that, um, but she for sure was living in sin because she was living with someone that she was not married to. By the way, our current culture says that's wisdom, right? Our current culture says, hey, well, you know, if you don't test drive the car, right? If you don't test drive the car, you may end up with something that just is uh, something you don't like, you know? And, and, and I hear people say this, well, pastor, you know what? You, you got to live with the person first, and, and then, you know, you have, to, you have to have a sexual relationship because what if you get married and then you find out that sexually you're not compatible? And it's like, that is... Let's start with God's way. Like, let's start, let's start with God's way. Today, he's present here to lift that guilt and shame, maybe that you've been bearing. Guilt and shame can be uncovered in the context of Christ's love. And listen, not only as he brings this up, as he brings this up, which could have been a very awkward situation for her, he did not turn her away. He didn't say, hey, look, woman, you've been busy. You've had five husbands, and, and you're shacked up with somebody right now, and, uh, and I'm out of here. You're not even worthy of my message. No, what he does is he now leads her into an understanding of the worship of God. By the way, this is the clearest, most comprehensive teaching on the worship of God that Jesus ever gave recorded in all of the Gospels. And I think it's fascinating that he did that in the context of ministering to the Samaritan woman. The Bible says in verse 20, she's got her like religious hat on now. She's all excited. She's going to drop some religious jargon. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking. Check that out. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, you got to understand there are two times that Jesus gives such clear self-revelation about him being the Messiah. And one of the times is right here to this Samaritan woman. The next thing as we're tracking through the story that we see is that Jesus leads this woman to the worship of God. As I said, she puts her religious hat on and she starts talking about worship. And in the context of a Samaritan, you know, they had their own temple that they had made on Mount Gerizim. They had their own religious system because Samaritans were half Jewish, half Assyrian. This was where the racial religious tension was created. They only believed that the first five books of the, the Old Testament uh, were actually inspired by God. They only received the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Jesus in response to her, as, as, as she's kind of laying out, well, this is how we do it. This is how we worship. This is where we worship. This is what worship is all about to us. Jesus essentially says, well, you can't just do it your own way. You can't create your, your, your own form or approach to God in worship because God is worshiped one way, and that is by spirit and by the truth. You know, I want to say to us today, you know, because many maybe would, would say, well, you know what, as long as you're sincere before God, that's all that really matters. As long as you're sincere in your heart, then God will receive your worship. You can basically make up any form or fashion that you desire because all that God cares about is your sincerity. And these verses right here undermine that whole attitude. No, it's not your tarot cards. It's not your New Ageism. It's not Islam. It's not the rituals of Protestantism or sacraments of Catholicism. If you want to worship God, you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. In fact, in fact, God is seeking. I mean, I think that we could just land on that phrase right there this morning, and that would be sufficient. God is seeking such to worship him. The truth was she was not seeking God, but God was seeking her. God is seeking you today. God is pursuing you today. God is after you today. Whether you're a Christian in this room or maybe you've not yet put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the hound of heaven is after you. He is pursuing you. You can't get away. There's a relentless love that God has for you. And in all of your attempts to discover him, when you do come to trust and faith in Jesus Christ, what you discover is this, he had been seeking you the whole time. Wasn't that true? I mean, as you look back on your life as a believer, and you look at the BC days, before Christ days, and you really just take a minute and analyze how many ways God was knocking on the door of your heart how many messengers God sent to you? How many miracles were happening before you ever even knew him to bring you to a place? Look, I would say there's probably many miracles that have happened just to get some of you to this place today. 
You've not put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, and here you are in a church, maybe the last place you ever thought you would be on a Sunday morning in the city of Las Vegas, in the city of Las Vegas, and I'm saying to you that there is a, a, a divine orchestrator who's working behind the scenes, who has been who, who has been moving things and arranging things. And as we were saying today, though we don't always see what he's doing, we know that he is always doing something. He's brought you here to this place today so that you could discover that he is seeking you. And what is he seeking you for? So that, you know, you can put some money in the offering plate? You know, so that you could do some, some good works? No, he is seeking you so that you can worship him. You know, the Bible says that God is light. It says that God is love. It says that God is a consuming fire. And here we see that Jesus says, God is spirit. God cannot be confined to a place, a ritual, a ceremony, a custom, or a brand. He is spirit. To commune with God, you have to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, and you have to have a renewed spirit. And that's what living waters are. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you are born again. You're born from above. The Holy Spirit enters your life simply through faith in Jesus and takes the dead spirit that was in your life and regenerates it and makes it new. This is how you commune with God. This is how you're able to pray in a way that God hears you. This is how you're able to read the scripture and have your eyes enlightened in the understanding and the knowledge of God because you have fundamentally been radically transformed into a spiritual being. You know, we are, we are three parts as humans, and there's disagreement on this. This is my view. Body, soul, and spirit. Before you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the order is body, soul, spirit. And when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, those are all reoriented. They're turned right side up, and now your life is oriented this way, spirit, soul, body. And that's really essentially what it means to worship God. Spirit, we have the spirit. Our spirit's been renewed. And in truth, we're talking about the divine revelation of God's word and his personal revelation through his only begotten son who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. When, I'll pause, thanks. <clears throat> and when that happens, when that happens, your life is reoriented. Your life is centered around God and surrendered to God in loving adoration and affection. In fact, I would say that that's what worship is. Your life is reoriented. It is centered around God, surrendered to God in loving adoration and affection. In other words, there was a point in time in your life where you thought you were flying right side up, but the truth the truth was you were flying upside down and God touched your life and he turned you right side up and now you're a worshiper of God. That's what we are today, by the way. We're just a bunch of worshipers of God <clears throat> that have gathered to give him praise. You know, I love what the Bible says in the book of Acts. The unbelieving world was remarking about these apostles that just had really caused a lot of turbulence and calamity. And they said of the early Christians, man, these people are turning the world upside down. And the truth was they were turning the world right side up. 
Final thing that we see here is that Jesus enlists her as one of the first preachers. Verse 27 says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You know, picture that. Just a a flood of people coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like these guys. I'm just saying, these guys. Not the sharpest tacks in the box. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months then comes the harvest. So it's like, hey, four months, we can, we can put this whole thing off. Harvest is down the road. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And, and, and the picture probably here is that there's a multitude of Samaritans that are coming from the village to, to see Jesus. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The final thing that I think is remarkable about this story is that Jesus enlists her as one of his first preachers. I mean, really, this woman went from being unusable to being used for God's glory. She went from being aimless to having purpose. She went possibly from being despised, despised, excuse me, to being chosen by him to be one of the first preachers. And I love what she said. It's so simple. Come see a man. Come see a man. I don't know how this worked out, but I just wonder if she rolled back into town and she went to the baker and she said, man, come see a man. Told me everything I ever did. Then she went over to the butcher and she's like, no, you got to come see this man. I mean, he's going to blow your mind. And maybe she went to the clique of women who despised her. And as hard as it was, you know what? She knew that they needed him too. And so she said, you you guys, I know you don't really like me very much, but you know, you need to come see a man. Maybe she went to the families of her previous husbands. Everybody knew her stuff. And she went into that village fearlessly, and she simply said, come see a man. I want to remind us today that this is our message. This is our message. Our message is not come see our church. It's not come see our preacher. It's not come see our worship team. It's come see Jesus. The final thing today is this, this whole conversation with this Samaritan woman, it unfolds, it blossoms into this beautiful explanation, this teaching moment for his disciples as he's trying to embed into their hearts two things. Number one is mission. Number one is mission. And number two is urgency. Listen, he cared for this woman. He personally ministered to her. I would, I would venture to say today that there's a Samaritan woman among us who needs to be touched by the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus carefully cared for this woman, but then also there was this plan to instruct his disciples concerning mission and concerning urgency. And the mission is to reach the lost with the gospel. Church, that is the mission. The mission is to reach the lost with the gospel. The mission is to have a heart that's burdened for those among us who don't know Jesus Christ. The mission for us is for people to come to the one who can supply real living waters that will bubble up within them to eternal life. The Holy Spirit of God turning people into worshipers so that one day when we stand in heaven, 
Heaven itself will be filled with people who will be worshiping the Father and worshiping the Lamb. That is the mission. And he embeds that point into the hearts of the disciples here. And then he also embeds the issue of urgency, right? Don't have the attitude that says something like, well, four months and then the harvest comes. Jesus says, and this is his word, Jesus says, now, now, now is the time. Today is the moment. There, there needs to be, the church has totally lost its sense of urgency to save the lost. And I, I don't know why that's the case. Maybe we've just become so comfortable. You know, maybe we're just so settled. Maybe we ourselves have created cisterns that are, have become substitutes for the real worship of God. God help us. God help us to not be the case. I mean, Israel at the time had all sorts of rituals and ceremonies and they were all oriented around God, but, but they were empty because God was not the focal point. There needs to be a sense of urgency in our life today to reach the lost. I want to encourage you this week. I want to encourage you this week. Have a sense of urgency. Have a sense of urgency. Believe that God ministered to the people who come to you, but be willing to go. Be willing to cross over the, the racial, religious boundaries, the conventions that are created by humanity, and bring the message of true hope to somebody who is in need. Amen? Yeah. All right. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you. Thank you, God, that you've spoken to us today, and I pray that you'd birth within our hearts uh, an urgency, God, a, a care, a compassion. God, eyes to see, eyes to see the people in need every day around us, people that, people that we interact with on a daily basis, maybe for years, that we've never even witnessed to. I pray today that that would change. I pray today, God, that we would be empowered by your spirit, that there would, we would have the boldness of a lion, that we'd be gentle like a dove, that we would catch the urgency of the times that we're living in and that we would prioritize what matters most. Today, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed, listen, I just want to I want to be so straightforward with you this morning. We don't gather in this church to just play games or go through religious motions. We gather to be in the presence of God and, and we do believe that God is, is with us and today you need him. Maybe, maybe you've sought satisfaction in the things of this world and, and maybe for you, you You've succeeded, but there's still an emptiness within 
your life, that's because you have a, a God-shaped whole that only Christ himself can fulfill. Today you can come with the burden of the guilt and the shame that you've been carrying and you can unload that today at the foot of the cross. Jesus died on the cross so that that burden could be lifted from you. So that you could be forgiven of your sins. And this is truly what God offers you today. If you believe in Jesus, God no longer holds your sins against you. A sacrifice was made. A lamb was slain. The lamb of God that was slain for the sin of the world. And when you put your faith in Jesus and you believe that he died for you and that he rose again, your life is transformed, it's reoriented, it's centered around God, and surrendered to him in loving adoration and affection. You become a, a spiritual being, hungry for spiritual things. You become a worshiper of God. Today, if you need to take that step of faith and trust in Christ and you need a burden lifted from you, I want to pray for you this morning. I'm going to ask you right where you're sitting, would you raise your hand today? Just stretch your hand up high. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. I see your hand over here. You want to put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Let me see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you. She can come just as you are today. You don't have to be ashamed to come to Jesus. You can give him your shame and your guilt, and he will he'll heal you. Anybody else? Maybe today as a Christian, you know you just need to be refreshed by the living waters that Jesus supplies today. If this is you, I want you to raise your hand. Maybe it's just been spiritually a little parched for you and you need to be refreshed today by the spirit of Christ in your life. God bless you and you and you and you and you and you. Thank you. See your hands. Let's see your hand. Thank you. All right. You can put your hands down. Father, thank you today, God, that you're present, that you're with us, and just ask for your mercy and grace, God, your uplifting and strength upon these lives. As they take this step of faith and come just as they are, may you supply above and beyond what they could ever imagine or think. In Jesus' name.